Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Let's pray as we begin, shall we? Father, we thank you that you work miracles today. Lord, we thank you that your resurrection power is alive and is working among us even now. God, we ask that every need that's represented here today will be met with the riches of your glory and your kingdom. God, we speak to every impossible situation today to be met with the name that is above all names, the name which every knee bows to, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We speak that name over every impossible situation. Lord, we trust that your name speaks a better word, a better word above every impossibility. And Father, we ask that even as we look upon your scriptures this morning, that you will stir faith within us to trust you for the greater, for the bigger things, Lord. Renew our faith this morning. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're starting a new series on miracles, and this is going to go for four weeks. And so I'd just like to give you a bit of uh, what's going to happen uh, over the next four weeks. And so I'm going to be speaking for the next two weeks. Whoop, whoop. You love me? Yes? Okay. Thank you for the spontaneous response. And, uh, and week three, uh, we'll have a friend that's going to be speaking to us. Uh, his name is Jeff Yuan. And so Jeff is going to be with us in week three. How many of you know Jeff? Yes? Yes, that guy sees miracles every day. And so we're super excited to have him. And then you get me again at week four. Yeah. Just regular old Andre. But uh, yes, I'm super excited for this four-week series. And so we have notes. We have all that good stuff out for you. And so, yes, it's going to be... Really, really fun. I'm expecting to see some miracles here, even in this morning. Shall we begin? How many of you are familiar with the story of uh, Peter stepping out of the boat? How many of you? You sang that song? I'm singing like I'm walking. Okay. On water. (laughs) We're all familiar with the story where Peter stepped out of the boat. And uh, Bible accounts that he stepped out of the boat into the storm when uh, the other disciples were in fear, they were trembling, they were hiding. But Peter, with great courage, boldness, and the Bible says faith, stepped out of the boat. We're familiar with the story, yes. And we're all familiar with what happened afterwards, where after he took that big step of faith, as he began to walk, the Bible says that he began to sing. And as he sung, you know, the Messiah, Jesus, came to him as he was sinking, pulled him up and said, why do you have little faith? Why did you doubt? It's because of his lack of faith that he began to sink. Here's a, here's a point I want to bring across to you this morning. No, we, we need the faith to step out of the boat. Can we all agree on that? Yes. But how many of you know that we also need the faith to stick it out, to continue walking? The big steps of faith are incredibly important. They are vital. But you need the faithfulness to stick it out as well, to continue walking on water. The point is such... Often what we see in the kingdom as a momentary experience, God desires for us to continually walk in that experience. Think about salvation. We think about salvation as a thing that happens in a moment. It's a momentary thing with eternal ramifications, of course. But we think of salvation as I prayed a prayer, I've done it, and so I am saved now. But the Bible, you know, in different verses seems to suggest different. 
it says that we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You are saved in that moment. You recognize Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But you are continually being saved even as you walk out your salvation. What we often perceive as momentary, God desires for us to walk in continually. Am I making sense? So what, what, how does this relate to this subject on miracles? Much like we see salvation as a momentary experience as opposed to a lifestyle, we often approach the miraculous as a last-ditch effort or something that we contend and pray for as a last resort when all other means have been exhausted. The miraculous for people like us living in a first-world country is often optional or is a last-ditch, last-resort effort. The miraculous is often more prevalent in third-world countries because there's a lack of medical resources, there's a lack of options, and the miraculous is their one and only option. But for us today, the miraculous is something that we put on the side, we put on the shelf, and we only take out this aspect of the kingdom of God when we are faced with an impossible circumstance that we have exhausted every possible personal resource, efforts of men, knowledge of men. And once we've exhausted all these things, then we go, hey, I need a miracle. But what we often perceive as momentary, God desires for us to walk in continually. Miracles are to be the lifestyle of the believer. Miracles are to be an everyday occurrence for the life of the church. Am I making sense? The big issue, however, is whether belief in supernatural occurrences is based on mistake, misunderstanding, fraud, legend, rumor, wishful thinking, confirmation bias, the placebo effect, or reality. In other words, does a miracle performing God actually exist? And has he left his fingerprints all over supernatural events throughout history down to the present age? Is he even able or willing to intervene in your life today? Today I hope to answer these questions. And this is my sermon title for this morning, Goes I Believe in Miracles. Where you're from? I believe in miracles. Do you believe in miracles? There can be miracles when you believe. The hope is frail. It's from Proverbs, I think. Worship team, altar call song. Just channel it, Ina Celine. As I talk about miracles today, I'm going to use the words miracles, the supernatural healing, signs and wonders interchangeably. And so today, what, what I hope to give you is, uh, I hope to give you a theological basis, biblical basis for miracles. In week two, I hope to talk about uh, the emotional aspect of miracles. I'm going to dive into that a bit. And in week four, where I'm speaking again, I'm going to talk about the practical aspect, how you can move in signs and wonders in your own life and touch the lives of people around you. Alright? So this is week one. Are you following me? Let's look at this passage of scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this is an odd passage of scripture to start with. But it goes, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. I want to draw your attention to line 3 and line 4. Test all things and hold fast to what is good. 
The word hold fast there, if you look at it in its original Greek, the word seems to suggest that it means to possess, to bind to oneself, or to restrain to oneself. Passage scripture says, hold fast to what is good. In some translations, it says this, to hold fast to what is truth. Hold fast to what is truth. Test all things, but hold fast to what is truth. To possess, to bind, to restrain oneself with. Here's the implication. The implication is such. Once you've discovered what is truth, you aren't permitted to live apart from it. Hold fast, possess, bind to oneself what is truth. Test all things. Once you've discovered truth, you aren't permitted to live apart from it. And all you do in life is with truth in mind, truth in view. That means you view all of life's circumstances through the lens of what is truth. Are you following me? Here's how it relates to our message today. Once the issue of the validity of miracles is settled, then I'm no longer permitted to interact with a circumstance wondering if God would do a miracle. Once the issue is settled, once I've discovered what is truth, I bind it to myself. I restrain myself with that truth. And everything I do in life, how I interact with the circumstances in life, is with truth in mind, is with truth in view, is with truth as a perspective. Am I making sense? We have to settle the issue. In Genesis, when we read about the temptation of men, we know that mankind was posed with two questions by the serpent, by the tempter, by the devil. He goes, did God really say that you can't eat from every tree in the garden? And if so, can God really kill you if you choose to disobey? In one breath, the serpent of old brings two questions into mind. Is God really that good that he would withhold something good from you? And is God really that powerful that he would be able to punish you should you choose to disobey? Is God really good and is God really that powerful? Whenever those two questions are, bring, are brought into doubt, we are in dangerous territory. When the goodness of God and when the power of God is brought into question. But let me just you know, bring it to a point of extension. Whenever we question whether God is willing, His goodness, and whether God is able to, His power, we are in dangerous territory. And with the subject of miracle, my suggestion to you this morning is that God is able to, He is powerful. God is willing, He is good. And the third thing I'd like to propose to you is that God does miracles in our lives today. He's alive and He moves in your life and mine. Miracles happen today. I believe in miracles. First Thessalonians 5, it says, Test all things. Test all things. The body of Christ feels two extremes at once. Two diametrically opposed teachings exist on the subject of faith and miracles, making us one body with a divided mind. And these two extremes are what theologians term cessationism and sensationalism. Say it with me. Cessationism and sensationalism. Great, they don't sound alike at all. Simply put, Cessationism, it comes from the word to cease, teaches that miracles are for the primary purpose of validating the Bible and after the canonization of the Bible, more dramatic miracles have ceased in our day. And of course, this belief is propagated by teachers who have not seen the miraculous. Miracles don't happen today. That's what cessationists believe. 
Sensationalism, which is defined as the presentation of stories in a way that is intended to provoke public interest or excitement at the expense of accuracy, suggests that the whole point of belief is miracles. A fruit of sensationalism is the inaccurate reporting of commonplace occurrences as miracles. <clears throat> the former says God wants nothing to do with miracles in our day, and the latter depicts God as one big miracle vending machine. Sensationalism seeks and experience, and cessationism believes only what it personally sees and experiences. Cessationism suggests that everything possible is also probable, while cessationism accepts only the presently probable as the presently possible. Both are obviously immensely flawed. And why did I bring it up? No, this is what happens when we have an inaccurate understanding of miracles, an inaccurate definition. We call commonplace occurrences miracles, Though the heart is pure, with an intent to glorify God, there is an immense integrity issue. Another fruit of that is when a miracle happens, yet we, do not, we don't see it as one. We withhold the glory that is due to God. It is when God intervenes, because we have developed a theology and a perspective that God doesn't move in our day, we withhold from Him glory that is due to His name. And this is who we do want to be. So skeptical and critical that we withhold from glory that, from God the glory that is due to Him. And we also don't want to be so gullible that we are void of intellect, discernment, and by extension, integrity. That's who we don't want to be as people. And we have to straddle a middle. We have to find a spot in between those two extremes and exist there. Where we are not so critical and dismissive that we've robbed God of the glory that is due His name. Yet we are not so gullible that we are void of intellect and discernment. That's where we want to be. And my goal for the series is this. To move us from being theologically charismatic, yet functionally cessationist, to being empowered by the Holy Spirit. I'm pretty certain that 90% of us, or possibly 100% of us, do not refute that God does miracles today. Do we believe in miracles? Yes. We have a charismatic theology. The Holy Spirit moves, the Holy Spirit does wonders in our midst. He is alive and is moving among us today. But yet, in our lives, we approach circumstances, we approach impossibilities, we approach negative situations as cessationists. A term that theologians have coined in recent years is practical atheism where circumstances are within my control practically. I'm an atheist. God doesn't exist. He isn't part of the equation. And when I'm in over my head, then I bring the God card in. But what we often perceive as momentary, God desires to, us to walk in continually. Am I making sense? Come on. Two-way conversation. <clears throat> what I believe in miracles is an exciting, fun and faith-building topic to dive into. I also recognize that this subject may carry within it pain, a sense of loss, confusion, and disappointment for some. It is my personal belief that if any person were to talk about the subject of miracles, he or she has to talk about the miracles that didn't happen. And that's why I endeavor to do it in week two. All of us, at some point, will experience pain, loss, and disappointment. All of us at some point will experience loss 
And I believe it's healthy for us to have a preemptive resolve and approach to miracles that don't happen. I want to start off with a sad and depressing truth, but it's a truth. Every healing at its best is temporary. Every healing at its best is temporary. The guy might get a life extension, 20 years. By the end of 20 years, he dies. Every healing at its best is temporary. But the Bible says that there will come a day where we'll be raised. New bodies, new life in God. No sin, no pain, no disease. We'll be in glory. There'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more weeping. And in that day, we'll be healed. Can we be healed now? Yes. Will we be healed then? Yes. Anyone who speaks on the subject of miracles must talk about the ones that did happen. Or else we are intentionally painting an incomplete picture. And when you intentionally leave out aspects, that isn't safeguarding faith, it's deception. Let me move on to the meat of my sermon. How many of you enjoyed a 35 sermon, 35 minute sermon last week? Yes? That's a miracle in and of itself. May it be repeated, I don't know. But it doesn't look too good for you today. <laughs> oh, only belief. How many of you are enjoying the content? Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you for that encouragement. I'd like to def- help us define what a miracle is this morning. And I'd like to begin with a couple of quotes. Of course, here's my intellectual hero, C.S. Lewis. Let's have his quote up. It goes like this. A miracle is something unique that breaks a pattern so expected and established we hardly consider the possibility that it could be broken. If for thousands of years a woman can become pregnant only by sexual intercourse with a man, then if she were to become pregnant without a man, it would be a miracle. Eric Metaxas, who wrote the book Bonhoeffer and wrote a uh, biography about William Wilberforce, he says this about miracles. He says, It is when something outside of time and space enters time and space, whether just to wink at us or poke at us briefly or to come in and dwell among us for three decades. Miracles. Miracles. Here's the truth. No, we often define miracles loosely or haphazardly. There is no standard definition for miracles which you may all turn. In fact, what is and isn't a miracle is extremely subjective. Do we agree on that? For some, miracles may look like healing from a certain ailment. For some, miracles might look like finding a parking lot in a crowded mall on a Sunday. For some, a miracle might look like your spouse doing a bit of housework. Miracle. Or some miracle might look like getting good test results, you know. Have you ever had a friend who said that, oh, I confer fail, I confer fail, I confer fail. Then they get straight A's. And they go, miracle. Please. (laughs) One man's miracle is often another man's eye rolling. What's the big deal? Weird coincidence. So when we are talking about miracles, one thing we can say objectively is that context matters and who is experiencing the miracle matters. Wayne Grudem, the author of the famous book Systematic Theology, says this about miracle. He says, A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Miracle is what bears witness to himself. I'd like to read to you a story. Everyone had high hopes for Benjamin after he finished third in his class at a predominantly black high school and scored the highest SAT ranking of any student in 20 years from a Detroit public school. He could only afford a $10 admission fee to apply to one college, so he chose Yale University 
and was granted no no yell pride okay was granted full scholarship he thought he was pretty hot stuff until the end of his first semester ben was failing chemistry a prerequisite in fulfilling his dream of becoming a physician everything depended on the final exam but he wasn't ready for it not by a long shot that evening he prayed lord Medicine is the only thing I ever wanted to do. He said, would you please tell me what is it you really want me to do? He intended to study for the exam all night, but sleep overcame him. All seemed lost until he had a dream. He was in alone in an auditorium when a nebulous figure began writing chemistry problems on the blackboard. When I went to take the test the next morning, he said, it was like the twilight zone, he recalled. I recognized the first problem as one of the ones I had dreamt about and the next, and the next, and the next. And I aced the exam and got a good mark in chemistry. And I promised the Lord that he would never have to do that again for me. <clears throat> Take that testimony, children. <laughs> ben went on to achieve his goal of becoming a physician. By age 33, he became the youngest director of pediatric neurosurgery in the country. Performing pioneering operations at John Hopkins Hospital, he separated twins conjoined at the brain performing the first successful neurosurgery on a fetus, developing new methods of treating brainstem and spinal cord tumors, and has awarded the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. A 2014 poll ranked Benjamin Solomon Carson Jr. as, the, as among the 10 most admired people in America. He even made a bid to become President of the United States. He didn't succeed, achieving front-runner status in the Republican primary for a season. All because of dream, helped him pass a chemistry course nearly 50 years ago. What do you think? Was this a coincidence? A tall tale exaggerated to promote a political career or a miraculous intervention of God? What do you think? The biblical definition of miracle is quite different from the scientific one. Our modern understanding of a miracle is that it can't have happened through any natural means. It must be instant and it must be 100%. The Bible sees the miraculous more from a perspective of timing. If the answer comes in relation to prayer, even, there, even if there could be a natural explanation, then it is a miracle because God is seen to work both in nature and above nature. The issue is the timing of the occurrence of the sign, the wonder, the miracle, the healing. You know, miraculous has been a big part of my life. You know, I shared this story uh, Often, you know, where uh, I was not saved yet. Friend told me, hey, Andre, do you know what you're gonna, what's going to happen to you after you die? What if you get hit by a car and you die? Do you know where you're going to go? And remember jaywalking the next week, the busy part. You know, I wasn't wise there then, but uh, I was jaywalking. Got hit by a car that was going 70 kilometers an hour. Got rushed to the hospital. And um, long story short, I was sitting in the doctor's office with the driver a young girl who just got her license. I definitely left an impact on her life. And uh, <laughs> I was sitting there, and it was just me, the doctor, and her. And the uh, doctor leans over the driver and says, like, how fast are you going? And she said, 70 kilometers an hour. And he turns to me and said, boy, you are lucky to be alive. And I had no broken bones, not, a sing not even a single bruise, not a single cut. And I flew across two lanes. And this is what the doctor said to me. The doctor said, it's a miracle you are alive. And that word miracle stuck with me as I went out to the hospita hospital waiting room. Then, then I recognized that it was Jesus who saved my life. And I gave my life to the Lord in that hospital room. A miracle. The first miracle I saw was a close friend of mine. You know, he 
had uh, really bad knees and he was an athlete, but uh, because of his knees, he stopped playing sports, got downgraded uh, in the army. And uh, one day, you know, a preacher calls him up and says, you know, God wants to heal your knees. And in an instant, his knees were completely healed. And he used to wear guards all the time, but he stopped wearing guards and he was set free in a moment. That was the first miracle I saw. A few years later down the road, you know, I, I was in a conference where the preacher said, everyone gets to pray for the sick. And I've only known uh, at that point in time that it was pastors, it was leaders, it was supernatural, awesome, amazing people that pray for the sick. And I was like, I'm a young boy, how can I pray for the sick? And he said, turn to people who have their hands up, who need prayer. And I turned to a gentleman on my left, and he needed prayer for his knees. And I just laid my hands on his knees, and I said, in Jesus' name, be healed. And he had problems uh, squatting down on the way. He could only go this much uh, down. And after I prayed for him, he went all the way down. He jumped up and down. He ran around the hall and he said, I'm healed. And that was the first miracle I ever saw through my hands. I had the miraculous happen to me. I've been a spectator of the miraculous. And I've seen the miraculous work through my hands. And I'm fairly certain that most of us had had similar experiences. When the issue is settled, I am no longer permitted to live as though it isn't. When the issue is settled, I have to view every circumstance, every situation in life through the lens of what God accomplished and did. I do not have permission to doubt again. The Greek word for miracle is the word simeos, which means sign. Literally means sign. You know, if you were to you know, how many of you recognize that we have an exit sign there? Yes, we have an exit sign. It points to the door. How many of you, uh, when you're exiting a church data, are going to attempt to call, crawl through the sign? None of you, right? You're going to crawl through, or not crawl through, walk through the sign to which, the door to which the sign points to. A sign always points to a reality greater than itself. Miracles are signs. They do not function just for its own purpose. They function to point us towards something greater. Miracles are signs, and like all signs, they're never about themselves. They're about whatever they're pointing toward. That's the point of miracles, to point us beyond our world to another world. They are clues that the other world is not in our imaginations, but it's actually out there, wherever out there actually is. Author Peggy Noonan said that miracles exist in part as gifts and in part as clues that there is something beyond the flat world that we see. If miracles exist at all, they exist not for their own sake, but for us, to point us towards something beyond, to someone beyond. The essential meaning of miracles then is to point us to the God behind the miracles. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus performed miracles precisely to prove that he was who he said he was. In the Old Testament, God performed signs and wonders to attest to who he was. People have their faith strengthened and deepened by miracles. And many people actually come to faith through miracles. I'd like to present to you my favorite definition of what a miracle is. And this is offered by the late Richard Bertel, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Western, Western Washington University. He goes, a miracle is an event brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. Let me read that again. A miracle is an event brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature 
for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. The God that created nature is not bound by it. Just because science can't explain a miracle doesn't mean it is impossible. God isn't bound by nature. To illustrate his definition, Pertil recounted how he had been prescribed nitroglycerin tablets for a heart condition. The pharmacist said something that stuck in his mind. If two tablets taken in succession don't relieve the pain, take a third but immediately call an ambulance. Not long afterward, the professor woke with a chest pain. He took one pill and later another but neither had been fed. He took a third and his wife offered to drive him to hospital but he called 911 and the paramedics arrived promptly and his life was saved. After he recovered, however, he had a flat, flat, flat tire on a car trip and his heart stopped while he was changing the tire. He fell unconscious. His head was on the freeway. Two passing motorists stopped. Both of them just happened to know CPR. One called the paramedics. Pertil's heart was restarted and his life was spared once more. Although he said he's grateful to God for the outcome, Pertil stressed there was nothing in the events to suggest any non-natural causes. The pharmacist remarks, the training of the people who helped me, the medical technology are all things that seem to need no non-natural explanation. Consequently, however, he does not consider his, pre his preservation to be miraculous. But on the other hand, he does believe as a Christian that God was, as usual, hiding divine action in plain sight amid the ordinary course of events. God was, as usual, hiding in plain sight amid the ordinary course of events. So some of what we casually classify as miracles really seem closer to fortunate coincidences or God at work through routine processes. Long story. But the question is, how can we tell them apart, coincidences and miracles? For me, when I see something extraordinary that has spiritual overtones and is validated by an independent source or event, that's when the miracle bell goes off in my head. In other words... A dream about a nebulous figure writing chemistry problems on a blackboard isn't mirac miraculous in and of itself. But if those equations are the very same problems that present themselves on an independently prepared examination the next day, then that does seem miraculous, especially when the incident occurs after a prayer pleading for God's help. Here are the three takeaways. I'd like to argue that miracles happen today, but not near enough of them are given the rightful attention. Maybe we pray and then a breakthrough happens and then we chalk it off to coincidence or a non-natural course instead of giving God the glory that is due His name. I also believe that the more attention is given to the miraculous in our life, the more our faith expands and the more we grow in our ability to trust God for greater impossibilities. And the more we contend for the miraculous to break into the lives of those around us, the more we will see people coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. One of the titles I was exploring uh, for this morning is the necessity of everyday miracles. And today I'd like to propose to you three reasons why miracles are necessary today. The first reason is this. Miracles authenticate the gospel. Miracles authenticate the gospel. Let's look at that passage of scripture in Hebrews chapter 2. It says this, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. How was it confirmed? God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, 
and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed to all according to His will. The Lord Jesus repeatedly demonstrated this power over nature, calming storms, healing the sick, cleansing with His touch, what according to the law of Moses was unclean. However, the most important thing about these miracles was not to excite admiration and delight, but to prove to people that Jesus has the power to release us from the bondage of sins and death. When the opportunity to heal a paralyzed man occurred, Lord Jesus demonstrated his power of healing the soul. First, he forgave the paralytic sins, and then he brought his physical health back. Catch this. Just as the Jews 2,000 years ago needed signs giving credibility to Jesus' divinity, just as pagans to whom the gospel was preached needed supernatural confirmation of its truthfulness, so today's world needs signs and wonders and miracles. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The word salvation here is the Greek word sozo. And the word that's used to describe healing in the Bible is also the Greek word sozo. The mistake when we think about salvation is that we think that the, that the message of salvation only pertains to the forgiveness of sin. But that word sozo has deeper implications than that. The word sozo means completeness, wholeness in every area and aspect of your life, body, soul, and spirit. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And that salvation does not just pertain to the forgiveness of sin, but it means deliverance, healing, and forgiveness. The gospel of the kingdom is the power of God for deliverance, for healing, and for the forgiveness of sin. Am I making sense to you? Romans 15, it says this, I, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and in deed to make the Gentiles obedient. Next slide. In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and run about to Elycrim, I have fully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. In word and in deed, through signs, wonders, and miracles, I have fully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. My suggestion to you this morning is that the gospel message, void of the void of signs, wonders, and miracles, is incomplete. Not just in word, but in deed. The Bible says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but power. And the word power is the Greek word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite for. It means demonstration, power. God's kingdom is about truth, but it's also about power. Raw demonstrations of the power of God breaking into impossibilities. I'm making sense. The gospel is a gospel of power and must become manifest through supernatural demonstration. Miracles are not optional for us. They are so important that Jesus hung the entire weight of his identity and ministry upon him saying, if I don't do the works of the Father, don't believe me. Just a simple study of the Gospel of John will leave us no doubt what he meant by the works of the Father. They are miracles, signs, and wonders. I wonder if we can come to a place as a church that we can echo the words of Jesus and say, Unless I do the works of my Father, do not believe me. Do not believe me. 
Second point, miracles herald the coming kingdom. They herald the coming kingdom. Let's look at a couple of passages of scriptures. Are you all with me? Yes? Giving you all a bit of a theological basis. But let's look at Matthew chapter 10. In verse 1 it says, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Verse 7 says, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. In Luke chapter 9, it says this, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. It's worth noting that 38.5% of all stories in the four Gospels are about healing. And in the Gospels, you see an immediate connection between the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus with the proclamation of good news and healing. Through healing, Jesus gave his audience a glimpse of what the fullness of the kingdom of God will look like. They were signs or pointers to the future kingdom finding expression in the here and now. They herald the coming kingdom. They give us a foretaste of what that kingdom is going to be like. Let us not kid ourselves to think that the kingdom of God has been fully established here. We see things that are obviously, obviously opposite to the nature, to the goodness of God. Let us not kid ourselves when we think that God's will has been fully realized on the earth. Jesus, in teaching his disciples how to pray, he said this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's kingdom and God's will has been fully realized on the earth, then that prayer is an unnecessary, a vain prayer. It doesn't make sense. God's will hasn't been fully realized on the earth. But the Bible promises that there will come a day when His will, when His kingdom is established on the earth. And that healing that we had a foretaste of, we will experience the fullness of it in the age to come. Am I making sense? Because His kingdom is now, but not yet, sometimes when we pray for people, they get healed. And other times when we pray for them, they don't don't get healed. But there is a coming kingdom and we all get to be a part of it. Amen? Last point. Miracles are proof of the resurrection. They are proof of the resurrection. John 20, it says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. You know, we, we uh, have run the Alpha course for, uh, this is our third run, and uh, in our, uh, in last week, you know, we talked about uh, the death of Jesus, why Jesus had to die. And uh, there were some really interesting questions that came out of uh, our discussion. Uh, one of the guests, he, he proposed this question, it's like, how do you truly know that your sins are forgiven? How do you know that your sins are forgiven? Is there a manifestation? Is, are there physical signs? You know, do you get a check mark instead of a cross? You know, how do you know that your sins are truly forgiven? And I found myself stumped. You know, how do I 
actually answer that, that question, you know. I, do I go ahead, the B-I-B-L-E say so, you know, just have faith, just believe, you know. What, what's a good answer to that question? How do you know your sins are truly forgiven? And another question was posed in our discussion group, and the question is this. Is forgiveness or the, the need for the forgiveness of sin relevant to non-believers? Let's ask ourselves that, that question. Is the need for forgiveness of sin relevant to non-believers? And the truth is, you know, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think a person wakes up in the morning and is like, I really need this forgiveness of sin thing. I hope someone comes to me and explains to me what sin and how I can be forgiven. I don't think people wake up that way. And the truth is, intellectual persuasion can only take you that far. And what I believe that these people need is that they need a demonstration of love. And more often than not, Jesus demonstrated his love for people by alleviating them out of dark situations by the power of God. If the question of whether God exists and whether there is a creator God who created this world in which we live in with certain moral standards, with an order, that if we transgress, there is a consequence. But then he provided a way out for us. If that question of whether there is a God that's alive in the first place isn't answered, then this whole thing of our need for forgiveness of sin isn't relevant. How do we prove to the world that our God is alive and he works wonders? Miracles. Miracles. Unless there's a belief and awareness in the creator God, the need for forgiveness of sin is irrelevant. How do we bring about an awareness of God through the miraculous? The miraculous feels like a moment where the curtain is drawn back almost and we get a glimpse into the fruit of the coming kingdom in the heart of the Father. But he also stands as witness that Jesus is alive and his power is at work. Let's have uh, that picture up. Let me show you a picture. Now this, this man, I, I prayed for this man uh, on a mission trip I went to and uh, you can't tell, but uh, with those bands on, on, his, uh, on his back and on his arm, you know, he uh, would be regarded as a witch doctor in, in, that, in, that, uh, in that country. And this is the country of Haiti. And we were in a voodoo festival. You asked me why we went. We were just curious young people. And so we went to a voodoo festival. We were walking and we saw a witch doctor. Now you can't see from this picture, but he's actually had polio all his life and has uh, no... Uh, mobility and function of his legs, you know, they're they are all shriveled up and uh, he was just sitting there. And one of the reasons why uh, he's a witch doctor is because as a man with polio, you know, there's no jobs that he can do. And so because he needed money and he needed a way to, you know, be productive, he became a witch doctor. And another reason why he became a witch doctor is this, because in that part of Haiti, there were, there's virtually no medical care, no medicine. And so because there's no medicine, no medical care, there needs to be some form of healing or some form of way to contend for healing. And people there go to witch doctors all the time. And we sat with him for, for a bit and chatted with him and uh, asked if we could pray for him. And he said, you know, why do you want to pray for me? And we said, we believe that Jesus is alive and he wants to heal you. And he said, no, I, I don't believe that there is power in whatever he's saying. He said, I'm more powerful. And he said, let us pray for you. And let's have the next slide, you know. And this is an interesting thought. You can't really see, but this liquid that's in that crater thing is actually incredibly thick. It, it, is, it used to be water, it used to be a pond, but what happens is that every Thursday, the people in the Voodoo Festival will take a fully grown bull, cut off his head, drop the head into the pond, 
and let the blood and the innards all flow out in the pond. And the belief of the people in that, in, in that place is that when that happens, we need to jump in and roll around like pigs and drink the water or else bad things are going to happen to us. And this witch doctor often participated in that ritual. He would jump in, roll around like pigs, drink the water because if not, bad things are going to happen to me. That voodoo thing is going to, it's going to haunt me. Next slide. And so we're going to pray for him. You know, he graciously accepted our prayer and then a crowd gradually formed and they were doing all sorts of voodoo things. You know, they were trying to charm us with the voodoo sticks and they were doing this. And, you know, but thank God we didn't see you or else we'd be really scared. But we were just focusing on this man. And what happened afterwards is that you know, we prayed and uh, we, we asked him, like, you want to test out whether you have legs? And you can't see his legs, but, um, but on the knees, there are these like, big, severe scabs because the way he gets around is that he drags himself all around on his knees. He isn't able to stand or doesn't have strength or mobility. So we prayed for him. And then all of a sudden, he lifts up his hands. And he says, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is alive. And the next slide is this. He stands up. He stands up. He stands up. And, we gave, and he gave his life to Jesus right there and there. Miracle, the miracles are proof of the resurrection. They are proof that Jesus is alive. They validate, they authenticate the gospel in which we preach. And they herald this coming kingdom where every pain, every sickness, every sorrow will be wept, wiped away in an instance. Miracles point people to God. Not just His existence, but His love for them. Jesus is alive and He is Lord. I'd like to give you one more verse, if that's fine. Matthew chapter 11, verse 23, it says this. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. If you're not uh, unfamiliar with Sodom, Sodom was an evil, sin-filled city that God destroyed. My question and my proposition to you is this. What if the key to the Sodoms and Gomorrahs of our day, the sin-filled cities, the cities that are void of God, that deny His very existence. What if the key to these cities are signs, wonders, and miracles? Are signs and wonders and miracles that authenticate our gospel, that proves that He is alive. Last quote from C.S. Lewis, he says this, Miracles, in fact, are retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. Sometimes people, or more often than not, they won't crack open the Bible. They won't do an in-depth theological study on the existence of God. What they need is a raw, open demonstration of God's love through the power. And we get to be His vessels, His conduits to see people shape change, transform, come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? Can we stand?